0: Daenerys Targaryen. Queen, Khaleesi, and mother of dragons and freed slaves alike. The unburnt, the stormborn, the breaker of chains, the fulfillment of the Azor Ahai reborn prophecy. She's all of these things and more. But first and foremost, we have to say that Daenerys Targaryen is one of the most compelling fictional characters ever created in modern storytelling and certainly she is one of if not the most talked about fictional characters created in the age of social media. That's right, anyone who's been on Twitter knows that. And the ending that HBO showrunners Dave Benioff and D.B. Weiss wrote for Daenerys is in turn one of the most controversial and hotly debated endings to any TV show or movie in recent memory. It was the ultimate heel turn. A character who had risked everything she had to save everyone from the White Walkers in the first three episodes of the final season, became a Butcher of Innocence only two episodes later. And not only did Daenerys turn her dragon fire on the innocent people of King's Landing, indiscriminately burning everyone in the streets for seemingly no reason, she then went on to give a grand speech justifying her slaughter in a scene deliberately designed to evoke the imagery of Nazi Germany. In the end, she became a menace to the free world who had to be essentially put down like Old Yeller and most cruelly, the deed was done by Jon Snow, the other primary hero of the story and the final love of Danny's life. Like many other fans, or perhaps even most other fans, I was disappointed and baffled by this ending. I didn't think it was consistent with the character up to that point on the show or her character in the books. I thought of all her great moments, like when she risked everything to free the slaves at Astapor, or when she used her newfound power in the Kallisar to protect victims of war, or when she chose to stay in Marine at the end of a storm of swords when she could have sailed for Westeros, because she felt responsible for the people there and the situation that she helped create. And I even remembered Missandei's speech on the show to Jon Snow in Davos outside of Draginson, about how Daenerys was the queen that we chose. A monarch so just and benevolent that people willingly followed her halfway across the world. A dragon mother who fought so fiercely to protect her people that they decided the safest and best place to live was wherever Daenerys goes. All of us who came with her from Essos, we believe in her. She's not our queen because she's the daughter of some king we never knew. She's the queen we chose. Will you forgive me if I switch sides? How could such a person be revealed as Dragon Hitler, essentially? A final villain of the story is bad or worse than the Night King himself. Is this bad or cynical writing? Or did most of us miss the signs leading up to this horrific heel turn? And more importantly, do the books foreshadow a similar, if better set up, heel turn for Daenerys? These were the questions in my mind immediately after season 8, and to answer them I set out to do a book by book reread of just Dany's chapters, for once ignoring the shiny baubles of symbolism and magic which usually draw my attention in favor of keying in on anything that revealed Dany's character, her words, her choices, her deeds, and her inner monologue. I took extensive notes and I did one live stream for each book, which you can find in a playlist called The True Character of Daenerys Targaryen. And now I've taken everything I learned from that reread and much discussion in the two years since and created this video. Of course, much has already been said about Dany's ending and the ending of the HBO show in general, and I think you could certainly critique Dany's ending just based on the material from the show. However, I was a book fan first, and I've read these things way too many times to count, so I'm here today to specifically try to answer the question of who is Daenerys Targaryen in the books of A Song of Ice and Fire, and to assess whether anything like the ending that we saw on the HBO show could happen to her in the books. Because here's the thing. Although there is a false conception out there that George R.R. Martin has said that the endings will be the same or more or less the same, this is actually not the case. In fact, we have every reason to believe that Danny's story in the books can and will end differently. We also have to consider that the books could give us a variation on the HBO ending which could be more nuanced and less cartoonishly villainous, such as a scenario where mass casualties are incurred at King's Landing, perhaps by wildfire caches being accidentally or treacherously set off during the battle, or scenarios where Danny may be viewed by many people as mad or villainous, despite a potentially different or more complex underlying truth. And that's something which is already happening to a large extent. The rumors about Danny are flying all over the world as of the end of A Dance with Dragons. So strap in, click the like button, and make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel because I'm David Lightbringer and I'm here to set the record straight on Daenerys Targaryen as best I can. First off, let me just give you the exact quotes regarding who thought of what parts of the ending that we saw on the TV show. Because it's kind of a waste of time trying to argue that Danny's book ending could be different if people think that George said it will be the same. First of all, here is Dan Weiss speaking on the John and Danny ending of the story from a documentary HBO released after season 8 called Duty is the Death of Love. I think the final scene between Jon and Daenerys is something we came up with sometime in the midst of the third season of the show. The broad strokes of it, anyway. But there was a tremendous amount of pressure to get it right, because we know this is not a scene that's giving people what they want. So Dave and Dan came up with the basics of this ending a long time ago. Their idea was, in essence, to have Danny turn into enough of a villain to justify Jon murdering her for the good of the realm, quote-unquote. Compare that with what Dave Benioff said about other major components of the ending that apparently came from George R.R. R. Martin. And this quote is from the same documentary. Around Season 3, we went to visit George R.R. R. Martin. And he writes, and he kind of figures things out as he's writing. When we went to visit him back then, and this is while he was still writing Book 6, he didn't know yet where the story was going, and he knew a few key things. And one of those key things was that the final king at the end of the story would be Bran. You can see that they're talking about the King Bran and the John Daenerys components of the endings in very different ways. Bran, being some sort of final king, was a George idea, which he told Dave and Dan about. Whereas Dave and Dan, quote, came up with the idea of John stabbing Daenerys. John only needs to stab Daenerys if Danny has gone full villain. Therefore, we can say that Dave and Dan are taking credit for the idea of Mad Butcher Queen Daenerys in general. Now, those of you who follow the discussion about the show and the showrunners probably know that Dave and Dan tend to be kind of quick to throw George under the bus for some of the more unpopular ideas, such as the burning of Princess Shireen Baratheon, Stannis' daughter, which they said was one of three moments that they recalled from what George told them about the remainder of the story. Now, nothing was more unpopular than the John Danny ending, so the fact that the showrunners took credit for that and did not deflect blame to George is further indication that that really was their idea and that George doesn't necessarily plan to turn Daenerys into the kind of insane psychopath who would enthusiastically butcher the very people she sought to rule. As for what George Martin himself has said about the ending, it seems that there is, again, plenty of room for a lot of things to be quite different. His first quote on the matter came right after the show, on his Nota blog where he mused, How will it all end? I hear people asking. The same ending as the show? Different? Well, yes, and no, and yes, and no, and yes, and no, and yes. That's literally what he typed. He he typed it all those times. He then went on to talk about the butterfly effect of small changes over the course of the show and about certain characters being alive in the books who are dead on the show and vice versa. But the bottom line seems to be that some things will be similar and some things not. Then in the summer of 2021, in an interview with PBS Chicago, George said of the HBO showrunners that, They caught up with me and passed me. That made it a little strange, because now the show was ahead of me, and the show was going in somewhat different directions. I'm still working on the book, but you'll see my ending when that comes out. So from this, we can take away that some parts of the story went in a different direction in general than what George intends, which speaks not of small changes, but potentially of major structural ones. A change in direction, after all, will lead to a totally different destination. And that sounds like what he's referring to when he talks about people seeing, quote, his ending when the final two books are released. Along the same lines, Martin also told German newspaper Welt that, quote, people know an ending, but not the ending. The makers of the TV show had overtaken me, which I didn't expect. In other words, Daenerys may very well have a different ending to what we saw on the show, both in the details of what she does and the overall direction that her story takes. It's worth pointing out how even small changes in detail can completely change the overall cast of an event, with the obvious example being the question of what if Danny just flies to the Red Keep and burns that down instead of turning her dragon fire on the populace of the city. That still would have been a severe action and a stern example to her enemies, but one that made tactical sense, because the Red Keep is where Cersei and her leadership were, and Cersei was the enemy. The choice to indiscriminately burn the populace of King's Landing, however, simply makes Danny's next task of enforcing her rule on the city more difficult and brings her no tactical advantage. And most obviously, it alienated her allies to the point where Everyone was sitting around talking about who it was that was going to go kill her. Additionally, and this is a finer point, but I do like to point it out, Danny's army was currently engaged in combat all over the city when she started burning everything. So presumably some of those burned by Drogon's fire would have been her own soldiers, a fact that was never addressed by the show. So despite the senselessness of all this, the writers had, by their own admission, committed to a goal of making Danny evil enough to warrant regicide. This is why they had to add the ham fisted and character breaking final act of Danny simply deciding to burn the citizens in the streets, right after the moment in which the ringing bells had signaled that her army had won the battle. Before that final act, nothing Danny had done cast her anywhere close to the neighborhood of despot or tyrant. And without that final act, Danny remains the brave and victorious queen that we chose, that Miss and Day spoke of, and who most of us remember from the books. Cough, cough. Most of us. Cough. Many fans have pointed out a far more plausible scenario for King's Landing to be decimated during an attempt by Daenerys to take the throne, which would be something involving a remaining cache of wildfire from King Ares's day being set off during the battle, perhaps by dragonfire. Although several attempts have been made to clean up those pesky wildfire caches, it's almost certain that some remain hidden, and seeing Danny accidentally set off some of them, makes sense for a couple of key reasons. Danny still has yet to come to a full reckoning regarding the legacy of her father, Mad King Ares, whom most people view as a cruel, unjust, oppressive, and even insane ruler. The reader is, of course, also aware of the secret that it was only Jaime Lannister's dishonorable regicide that prevented Ares from using wildfire to murder most of the citizens of King's Landing. So we know these are not mere rumors about Ares. After all, he tortured people for fun raped his wife Rayella, and again tried to make King's Landing a giant funeral pyre when he thought he was losing the throne. Danny has only begun to hear about the truth of her father's reign, so this reckoning is still surely coming. Having the wildfire essentially blow up in the face of her attempt to take the throne would amount to a visible depiction of Danny having to confront the legacy of murder and misrule her father left behind. Thus, it's pretty easy to see how many things could remain the same. Danny taking or trying to take King's Landing, thousands of people being burned alive during the battle, and Daenerys taking the blame, even while small changes completely alter the way we view a character. Another change that many people expect to see in the books is the general order of events with Danny in Westeros, meaning that it probably makes more sense to see Danny deal with King's Landing first and then to conclude her story up north fighting the others. If Bran is to be a final king of some sort in the books as well, then it's likely that Danny will still die at some point, but all the foreshadowing I can find seems to point to a heroic, sacrificial death in the north. And do check out the Born to Burn the Others video for the scoop on that. The order of the events that we saw on the show, with the battle against the White Walkers being overshadowed by the War of the Mad Queens between Cersei and Danny, really made little narrative sense. After all, if one thing has been made clear to us over the course of the series, it's that the real threat to humanity comes from the North, and that those with power should be concerned with defending the realm, not claiming the throne. In fact, I believe that Danny's course of action in Westeros will actually mirror those of King Stannis, who faced the exact same dilemma of claiming the throne or defending the realm that Danny will face. Just think about the potential parallels. Stannis begins his conquest of Westeros from Dragonstone, attempting to take King's Landing but failing, with thousands being burned alive by wildfire. Then, Stannis receives word from the Night's Watch about a threat from the North, and has a crucial realization about his responsibilities as king Shout out Davos Seaworth which causes Stannis to turn north and fight a battle at the Wall in alliance with the Night's Watch So when you lay it out like that, it's pretty easy to see how much sense it would make for Danny to follow a similar path with potential higher-than-expected civilian casualties due to wildfire perhaps causing Danny to rethink the entire idea of taking the throne This is when she might receive word from the Night's Watch about the true threat and decide to turn north. After all, this part of Season 6 did make a lot of sense to me, seeing Jon Snow give impassioned warnings of the Others to Daenerys and seeing them bond over the bravery that each shows the Other in the course of preparing to deal with the Others. Danny will also likely begin her conquest from Dragonstone, as Stannis did. And since the main Red Temple in Volantis is already proclaiming Daenerys as Azor Ahai Reborn, it would kind of make sense to see Danny named as Azor Ahai Reborn by a Red Priest or Priestess on Dragonstone, just as Stannis was. Even Stannis marching to Winterfell to fight a great battle in the middle of a snowstorm after reaching the Wall could be repeated by Daenerys as well. Since I do think that the others will penetrate into Westeros, and that there will be a battle against them at Winterfell, if not more than one. And check out the recent live stream called War for the Dawn 2.0. Another major butterfly effect change from books to show that will definitely affect Danny's endgame is the TV show's omission of the great character known as Fagon, slash young Griff, slash probably Aegon Blackfire. Young Phagon, as I prefer to call him, appears primed to take King's Landing from Circe well before Danny ever sets foot in Westeros, which means that he will likely be the one occupying the Iron Throne when Danny arrives. This seems to be the implication of the part of Danny's House of the Undying vision that reads, A cloth dragon swayed on poles amidst a cheering crowd. Danny later explains to Jorah that this is called a Mummer's Dragon, which is a cloth dragon on poles that Mummers use in their follies to give the heroes something to fight. The Mummer's Dragon is also mentioned by Quave in her many warnings to Danny, so we know this figure is important, and we can conclude that this figure is none other than Phagon, who is being passed off as a Targaryen, but who is probably a Blackfire. And that would make him a fake dragon, or you might say, a dragon produced via mummery and lies. Even better, the ones performing this mummery, Varys and Illyrio, are actually former mummers, making Phagon a mummer's dragon twice over. And now thanks to Tyrion's intervention slash meddling, Phagon the mummer's dragon is indeed being set up as an opponent to Danny, Something for the hero to fight, in other words. The key line from the Undying Vision to take note of here in regards to how the order of events will fall out is the one that describes the cloth dragon as being amidst a cheering crowd. This likely indicates that Fagon's ascent to the Iron Throne will be both successful and, more importantly, well received. Meaning that he'll be a popular king when Danny arrives. This makes sense, of course, since Fagon will be replacing Cersei, whom I don't need to tell you is an impressive and just overall terrible ruler. Cersei is also being actively and effectively undermined by Varys, who is working to set the stage for Fagon's ascent. We don't know how the interaction between Daenerys and a potentially popular King Phagon will go. Although it is likely that King Phagon's fake identity is one of the lies that Danny must slay, so expect tragedy and conflict. But the point is that the battles that we see at King's Landing will be very different than anything on the show, simply because the players and the timing will all be different. Before Danny ever arrives, King's Landing will probably already have taken a beating during the battle between Fagon and Cersei, and it's even possible that wildfire could be set off in this first battle, in an event somewhat similar to Cersei's destruction of the Sept of Baelor on the show. I do think there's some foreshadowing for a similar Sept of Baelor explosion. So by the time Danny arrives to try to slay the lie of King Aegon the Mummer, the city could already be half destroyed, and. Just in time for winter, the dragon dance between Danny and Fagon will no doubt be a dark and violent tale. But it's not going to be the climax of the story, and I'd actually expect it to serve as part of the catalyst that turns Danny's attention away from the throne and towards the north. Oh, and one last thing: when Danny gets to Westeros. She will probably have just burned Volantis, and by that I mean the inner city of Volantis, the part behind the huge black walls of valerian fused stone, where only citizens with blood ties to Old Valeria are allowed to go. Those of the quote, old blood, are basically the richest slave masters in the known world, and it's heavily foreshadowed that there's another slave revolt in the works here. The Widow of the Waterfront and the Priests of Relore will probably have all the slaves that serve in the inner city on the same page, as far as making scarce when Danny gets there. And do check out the Winds of Winter preview that I did with Quinn's ideas called Burning Volantis thus will have an essentially righteous act, which is in keeping with Dany's character. She does tend to burn and kill slave masters, after all, but which will nevertheless cause many in Westeros to fear her arrival, fear that she's a mad queen, and so on. So, that's my general take on the structure of the final events of the story. I think a lot of things may be similar to the show, even while being very different, and some things will just be very different. The events surrounding Danny, in particular seem likely to fall out in a different order, which means that we actually do have the space to step away from the shadow of the Mad Queen Daenerys ending and take a fresh look at the character that comes through on the pages of the books, and a fresh look at how we think her story might end. Most of all, we should expect the books to give the characters endings that fulfill their character arcs, right? And seem in line with who they've been and who they might have grown into. Consistent character arcs, quite frankly, is an area where the show struggled in general. And here I'll give a shout-out to the excellent character study that Alt Shift X did on Tyrion Lannister recently. He similarly made the point that the ending the show wrote for Tyrion essentially invalidated or ignored the character he had been for the first four seasons of the show, which were actually pretty close to the Tyrion from the books up to that point. With Danny, I believe it's an even more glaring failure, because the show actually wrote an ending for her that went against the person she was in the first three episodes of that same season let alone the person she was in Season 6 when Missandei gave her speech, or the person she is in the books. So, who is the character of Daenerys Targaryen, really? Let's take a look. First and foremost, Daenerys Targaryen is a liberator. Danny wears a lot of nicknames, but I think the one that best epitomizes her character in the books up to this point is Breaker of Chains. This name comes from Danny's triumphant moment in Astapor, where she not only liberates the Unsullied, but actually rages against the machine by making an attempt to end the practice of making Unsullied altogether, by slaying the slave masters of the city. That scene is an obvious standout and one of the best in the entire series, but I feel that understanding Danny's character begins with understanding that when she leads that slave uprising in Astapor and then the rest of Slaver's Bay, Danny is herself a former slave, who has worked her way back to the center of the very same slave economy which first ensnared her at the beginning of her story. One of the pro-slavery volantines that Danny's probably going to burn explains how this works to Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons. The girl's true sin cannot be denied. This arrogant child has taken it upon herself to smash the slave trade, but that traffic was never confined to Slaver's Bay. It was part of the sea of trade that spanned the world, and the dragon queen has clouded the water. Behind the black wall, lords of ancient blood sleep poorly, listening as their kitchen slaves sharpen their long knives. Slaves grow our food, clean our streets, teach our young. They guard our walls, row our galleys, fight our battles. And now when they look east, they see this young queen shining from afar, this breaker of chains. The old blood cannot suffer that. The slimy tentacles of the slave trade do indeed extend far beyond Slaver's Bay, all the way out to the shores of the Dothraki Sea, in fact, where the Dothraki horse lords feed slaves back into the system like the arms of a great kraken, cramming food into its nasty squid beak. The Dothraki have long had a routine of pillaging towns and villages all over Essos, and then selling the prisoners they take down in Slaver's Bay. So when Dany's story opens, with Viserys and Illyrio selling her to Khal Drogo, she's actually being gripped by a tentacle of that same monster, which she later burns to ash in Astapor, Yunkai, and Meereen. Thus, Daenerys is not only a liberator of slaves, but a former slave herself. She's more Spartacus than Hitler, if you will. The slaves of Slaver's Bay actually come from all over Essos and the rest of the world. So there's absolutely no difference between Danny and the people that she's helping to liberate. Save that she's the sole human being with the unrivaled power of Dragonfire at her command. And thus the only slave with the power to do something about the larger system. Rather than walk away from Astapor with only the Unsullied warriors she could afford to purchase, she risked everything to liberate all of the Unsullied and to end the practice itself. And this decision, and Danny's moral compass in general, is no doubt informed by her own experience as a victim of the SoC slave trade. Here is Daenerys speaking to Sir Barristan, who is still posing as strong Belwis' squire here, on the eve of her liberation of the Unsullied. Do you know what it is like to be sold, squire? I do. My brother sold me to Cal Drogo for the promise of a golden crown. Well, Drogo crowned him in gold, though not as he had wished, and I, my son and stars, made a queen of me. But if he had been a different man, it might have been much otherwise. Do you think I have forgotten how it felt to be afraid? So Danny is very perceptive here, as she is elsewhere, in observing her relative privilege compared to other slaves. She notes that it was only for sake of her somewhat unique relationship with Drogo that she was spared the worst parts of slavery. While also making it clear that her experience being sold into slavery is a key component of her identity, and that the weak and downtrodden are the people that she's going to identify with in any given situation. That's why Martin begins her story, neck deep, in the scene where Danny is being sold by Illyrio and Viserys. It's one of those classic literature things where you try to give your main characters opening scenes that define their character and where their story is going. Daenerys begins her tale being sold into slavery and then proceeds to use every bit of power she gains throughout the story trying to liberate and protect people, culminating in her smashing of the slave trade in Slaver's Bay. This brings us to the next facet of Danny's personality. Daenerys Targaryen is a protector. Or perhaps we might say that Daenerys Targaryen strives to be a just ruler, in that she tries to use her power to protect the weak and to bring justice. The use of power is one of the primary themes of the story, and Dany brings moral clarity to the matter of what makes a just ruler in another statement she gives the night before her liberation of the Unsullied, this time to Sir Jorah. I was alone for a long time, Jorah, all alone but for my brother. I was such a small, scared thing. Viserys should have protected me, but instead he hurt me and scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. Why do the gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? And indeed, the next morning, Danny wakes up and uses the power she has, her dragons and her wits, to begin protecting those who do not have their freedom. Much like Stannis, realizing that if he wanted to be king, he needed to start by protecting the realm's people instead of fighting over the chair, Danny decides that if she ever wants to be Queen of Westeros, she needs to start right here, by living up to her ideal of what a just ruler is. And that meant risking everything and accepting no compromises in order to liberate and protect the Unsullied and the rest of the slaves of the city of Astapor. This is certainly a key moment to examine if we're asking the question, how will Daenerys Targaryen wield her power in Westeros? If Dany were ever to become the kind of person who would slaughter their own subjects, then we'd have to say that she'd be utterly turning against her fundamental belief about what makes a just ruler. That's exactly what I mean when I say that Dave and Dan destroyed her character by giving her the ending that they did. In the first part of Season 8, Dany is still living up to her ideal by risking everything she has to come battle the White Walkers up north. She's still using her power to try to save every innocent life that she can. And then, only two episodes later, we're supposed to accept that she's become the opposite sort of person who sees the lives of her subjects as things to be smashed and burned in a fit of rage or insanity or giving stern lessons or however the showrunners choose to characterize her senseless and sudden heel turn. It's simply not a believable transformation or, as I like to say, Hitler wasn't freeing slaves in his teens before turning to eugenics and genocide in his 20s. That's really just not how people work. By contrast, George does put us in the POV of people who may be capable of mass murder. And those people are Jon Connington and Cersei Lannister. Just consider how different their inner monologue appears. Compared to Danny's, John Connington is a ticking time bomb of grayscale, bitterness, desperation, and rage. And don't forget that grayscale slowly drives you mad. He's learned all the wrong lessons from Tywin Lannister's cruelty, and he's ready to make the reigns of Castamere look like a pool party if that's what it takes to seat Fagon on the Iron Throne. Cersei, meanwhile, well, her thought life pretty much consists of rage, paranoia, fear, and suspicion. And don't forget jealousy. She's obsessed with vengeance and thinks about murdering basically anyone who is a slight inconvenience to her. Tyrion probably says it best, and this is from that conversation where Tyrion is convincing Phagon to head straight for Westeros and the throne instead of trying to meet up with Danny first. Westeros is torn and bleeding, and I do not doubt that even now my sweet sister is binding up the wounds with salt. Cersei is as gentle as King Magor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as Mad Ares. She never forgets a slight, real or imagined. She takes caution for cowardice, and dissent for defiance. And she is greedy. Greedy for power, for honor, for love. Tommen's rule is bolstered by all of the alliances that my lord father built so carefully. But soon enough, she will destroy them, everyone. Land and raise your banners, and men will flock to your cause. Lords great and small, and small folk too. But do not wait too long, my prince. The moment will not last. The tide that lifts you now will soon recede. Be certain you reach Westeros before my sister falls, and someone more competent takes her place. This is a nice follow-up to the points I was making earlier about Phagon taking the throne before Dana gets to Westeros. You can really see how well it's set up for Phagon, and we haven't even mentioned John Connington's talk of having friends in the Reach, which indicates that some of Cersei's top allies and generals may be waiting for the right moment to defect to Team Phagon. But the main point here is to contrast the character of Cersei, or John Con to that of Daenerys, and to observe how an author incubates a character who's going to go insane and kill a bunch of people over the course of a story. Most of all, we can observe that Cersei and Danny, the two mad queens at the end of the show, they just have opposite approaches to wielding power and taking responsibility for their subjects. To imagine that their arcs would somehow land in the same place, murderous, borderline insane tyrant, is, in my opinion, nonsensical. When we look at Danny's use of power, on the other hand, we see Martin incubating the sort of compassionate and just character who will be able to figure out how to wield the most deadly force in the known world in a way that protects people instead of oppressing and murdering them. Now, the incubation, if you will, of Danny's character begins long before she ever gets to Slaver's Bay and becomes the Mysa to freed slaves and refugees. And as I mentioned earlier, so does Danny's track record of using power to protect, liberate, and to bring justice. The first power that she gets in the story comes via her place in the khalasar as Drogo's Khaleesi, and more importantly, from Danny's ability to earn the Dothraki's respect by mastering their culture and custom. And sure enough, Danny first thinks to use that power to protect prisoners of war, the ones taken in the Dothraki's raid of a Lazarene village. Daenerys is not only protecting the weak here, but actually taking her first steps to dismantling the slave trade as a whole, by upending the Dothraki customs concerning taking prisoners of war as slaves. Danny's seventh chapter in A Game of Thrones tells the story. The chapter opens with a vivid and gory description, trigger warning, of the aftermath of a battle between Drogo's khalasar, another khalasar, and the village of the Lazarene, who are called the Lamb Men. Danny is taking it all in and begins to sympathize with the captives. This feeling wars with her desire to make herself fierce and hard, which leads to her contemplating the cost of the Iron Throne. Across the road, a girl no older than Danny was sobbing in a high, thin voice as a rider shoved her over a pile of corpses, face down, and thrust himself inside her. Other riders dismounted to take their turns. That was the sort of deliverance the Dothraki brought the Lamb Men. I am the blood of the dragon, Daenerys Targaryen reminded herself as she turned her face away. She pressed her lips together and hardened her heart and rode on toward the gate. Most of Ogo's riders fled, Sir Jor was saying. Still, there may be as many as ten thousand captives. Slaves, Danny thought. Khal Drogo would drive them downriver to one of the towns on Slaver's Bay. She wanted to cry, but she told herself that she must be strong. This is war. This is what it looks like. This is the price of the Iron Throne. So here we see the author laying out what will become Danny's primary conflict of the heart, which is what Martin always talks about with his characters, right? Danny's conflict is the tension between her quest for the Iron Throne and her desire to be compassionate. Danny attempts to steel herself to the cruelty and to the thought of 10,000 new slaves, but this hardness lasts only seconds before breaking. Behind them, the girl being raped made a heart-rending sound, a long, sobbing wail that went on and on and on. Danny's hand clenched hard around the reins, and she turned the silver's head. Make them stop, she commanded Sir Jorah. I will not have her harmed, Danny said. I claim her. Do as I command you, or Khal Drogo will know the reason why. Even after Sir Jorah, her handmaidens, and her blood riders all try to explain that... You know, this is the way of Dothraki culture. Daenerys demands a change, wielding her new power as Khaleesi to begin playing the role of Mother and Protector, which later comes to define her arc in Slaver's Bay. This continues as they ride through the destroyed Lazarene town. Again, you can see Dany already taking on the Mother to Orphans role, which only grows throughout her story. She's claiming them as her slaves, but really they are her children, just like the refugees in Slaver's Bay. Through her actions, we can see that Dany cares more about her children than the Iron Throne, and this scene is one of several examples of her choosing to help the people that are right in front of her at the expense of her goal of retaking Westeros. Another great example is at the end of her A Storm of Swords arc, where Daenerys makes a very conscious decision to forego marching on Westeros with her new army in favor of remaining in Slaver's Bay to try to bring some peace and stability to her new people. Then in A Dance with Dragons, Her unsullied and freedmen soldiers are being killed by the Harpy's sons, and Daenerys is urged to begin executing the children of the most powerful Myrinese slave families, whom she's taken as cupbearers and hostages. But she, of course, refuses, saying, What good is peace if it must be purchased with the blood of little children? This is another manifesto statement which informs us about Danny's core values, and even before she's able to express those values in such clear wording in Book 5, she's putting them into action here in Book 1, the scene of this Dothraki raid, by rejecting the idea that such rape, pillage, and enslavement is simply the cost of the Iron Throne. This is also the beginning of another component of Danny's identity, one which basically functions as the other side of the coin of her status as a protector. Daenerys Targaryen is a cleansing fire, tearing down corrupt systems of power wherever she goes. The aftermath isn't always pretty, because Dany is by definition disrupting the established systems, both here on the Dothraki Plain and later in Slaver's Bay. And George Martin is seeking to tell a realistic story which seeks to deal with exactly these kinds of difficult questions. Questions like, how do you deal with the power vacuum that follows a revolution, or How do you actually replace an unjust political system? It may be that, in the end, Daenerys turns out to be better at tearing down unjust systems than replacing them with new ones. But we have to begin any analysis of these issues with the observation that Dany is a just actor, wielding her power against unjust people in order to protect those they are oppressing. She's certainly a dragon, but she tends to aim her fire at the most corrupt aspects of society, and thus her identity as a cleansing fire. You can see Danny beating a path through this scene of death, rape, and enslavement, exactly like a fire moving through an old dry wood, and she burns the same sort of path through the slave traditions of Slaver's Bay. Going hand-in-hand with the idea of Danny as a cleansing fire is the fact that Daenerys Targaryen is a dragon, And it's especially notable that, just as Dany uses her actual dragons to help liberate the Unsullied, Dany is drawing strength from her dragon identity all throughout these chapters on the Dothraki Sea that lead up to this moment of protecting the prisoners of war. Accordingly, as Dany takes more and more people under her protection, Jorah remarks that Dany's fierceness reminds him of her brother Rhaegar. Just as Danny will later think of herself as Rhaegar crossing the Trident when she springs her gambit to free the unsullied and destroy the slave masters of Astapor. As the scene continues, and as Danny continues to liberate slaves, we see her dragon identity come out pretty explicitly. You cannot claim them all, child, Sir Jorah said the fourth time they stopped, while the warriors of her cause herded her new slaves behind her. I am Khaleesi, heir to the Seven Kingdoms, the blood of the dragon, Dany reminded him. It is not for you to tell me what I cannot do. Across the city, a building collapsed in a great gout of fire and smoke, and she heard distant screams and the wailing of frightened children. Indeed, it is true that Danny can't save everyone, a point which is underscored by the collapsing building and the accompanying screams in the distance. But just because you can't fix everything doesn't mean you shouldn't try to effect what change you can, and that's what Daenerys does here. Again, Martin isn't giving us a cartoonishly righteous character in Daenerys. She isn't perfect, and her quest to do justice doesn't always work exactly as she planned. Nevertheless, Danny tries again and again to use her power in accordance with her values of protecting the weak. This ultimately comes down to a question of how Dany will use her dragons and her armies when she gets to Westeros, in pursuit of the Iron Throne or to save Westeros from the others. So I'm highlighting the ways in which the fierce dragon side of her personality and the liberator, protector, mother components actually work together. Ser Jorah says, hey, you can't save everyone, and Dany says, yeah, but I'm the blood of the dragon, and I'm gonna try anyway. And I think that's Danny's courage and heroism in a nutshell. It's just the sort of courage you need to fly into the teeth of the winds of winter and fight the others, isn't it? Danny's dragon wakes again later in the chapter when she succeeds in convincing Drogo to alter Dothraki tradition. As you can see, Danny's dragon is woken by evil and abusive men in particular. And as you can also see, Danny is daring and bold both here in her play to change Dothraki custom, and later in risking everything to liberate the Unsullied. Presumably, this foreshadows her risking everything to save the world from the Others, as do many things in her arc. And again, I'll mention the video, Born to Burn the Others, as well as the stream, Journey to the Heart of Winter. Most importantly, Daenerys couples this daring and courage of a dragon with a strong moral compass, as you can see, one which is informed by her own experience. From a game of thrones all the way through a dance with dragons, Dany uses both her draconic identity and her actual dragons in accordance with her beliefs about just rulers protecting the weak. And in my mind, this is exactly how you incubate a character whose ultimate destiny will be to see through the false prize of the Iron Throne and realize that the dragons were given to her to save the world from the others. Now the contrast in Slaver's Bay between Dany and her Valyrian ancestors really couldn't be more striking, since it was the Valyrians who used their dragons to drive this very same slave economy for 5,000 years, imitating the slavery practices they learned from the Giscari Empire, whom they later destroyed. In other words, Danny is returning to the scene of many crimes to use the dragons to liberate slaves instead of enslave, which is a poetic answer to history the reader is surely meant to notice. Now, there actually used to be a sort of consensus wisdom in the fandom that the two opposing poles of Danny's personality were that of Mysa and that of The Last Dragon, with her Mysa mother aspect describing her desire to protect her people, whom she thinks of as her children, and the dragon aspect symbolizing her wrath, her willingness to bring fire and blood down upon her foes. This idea lingers on in some corners of the fandom, annoyingly, and was only reinforced by the show's ending, I'm sad to say. But what I eventually realized during my post-season 8 Danny reread, and what you've surely been able to see through the video so far, is that these two aspects are actually one and the same, because Daenerys only ever uses her dragons to protect her people, and to punish those who oppress them. This is actually entirely consistent with, drumroll please, Archetypal mother goddess figures from all across world mythology, that's right. And if you know one thing about mother goddesses, you know their wrath is always terrible when their children are threatened. Of course, such mythical archetypes flow from real life, where human and animal mothers alike will fight to the death to protect their children. Danny, at her core, is thus not unlike the she-bears of House Mormont of Bear Island. When Catelyn Stark asks Lady Mage Mormont if... All Mormont women are so fierce. We get this. She bears aye, said Lady Mage. We have needed to be. In olden times the iron men would come raiding in their longboats or wildlings from the frozen shore. The men would be off fishing like us not. The wives they left behind had to defend themselves and their children or else be carried off. There's a carving on our gate, said Daisy. A woman in a bare skin with a child in one arm suckling at her breast. In the other hand, she holds a battle axe. She's no proper lady, that one, but I always loved her." Danny does play the proper lady at times, but she's definitely more comfortable in her Dothraki riding leathers than her Miranese Tokar. Probably more comfortable still dressed in burnt rags and clinging to the neck of her dragon. Most importantly, I simply want to highlight the presence of this fierce mother archetype in the story even separate and apart from Daenerys. Neither Daenerys nor the She-Bears of Bear Isle will let their children be enslaved, at least not without a fight. I have never wanted war. I defeated the Young Kai once and spared their city when I might have sacked it. I refused to join King Cleon when he marched against them. Even now, with Astapor besieged, I stay my hand. And karth I have never done the Qarthian any harm. Not by intent, no, but Karth is a city of merchants, and they love the clink of silver coins, the gleam of yellow gold. When you smashed the slave trade, the blow was felt from Westeros to Ashai. Karth depends upon its slaves. So too, Tolos, Nugis, Lys, Tyrosh, Volantis. The list is long, my queen. Let them come. In me they shall find a sterner foe than Cleon. I would sooner perish fighting than return my children to bondage. Thus, some of the seeming conflict in Quaid's advice to Danny at the end of A Dance with Dragons and Danny's basic moral compass may be illusory, meaning that. Danny embracing her identity as a dragon lord doesn't necessarily have to conflict with her desire to do justice. The quote I'm talking about is the one from A Dance with Dragons, where Quaithe is speaking to Daenerys in a waking dream, through the voice of Sir Jorah, the swaying grass, and finally the stars. It is such a long way, she complained. I was tired, Jorah. I was weary of war. I wanted to rest, to laugh, to plant trees and see them grow. I am only a young girl. No, you are the blood of the dragon. The whispering was growing fainter, as if Sir Jor were falling farther behind. Dragons plant no trees. Remember that. Remember who you are. Remember what you were made to be. Remember your words. Fire and blood, Daenerys told the swaying grass. Now, Danny does indeed plant trees and other things, both in Marine and in Base Toloro, that abandoned ruin of a city that they found in the Red Waste. For that matter, Jaehaerys Targaryen built the King's Road, and Queen Alicent reformed many laws for the better. But that's not really the point here. Quaithe knows that the Long Night is approaching, and that it's simply not the time for city-building or tree-planting. Just as Bloodraven is shaping Bran to face the Others, so too is Quaithe preparing Danny. And what will be needed against the Others is a great deal of cleansing-fire-big-dragon-energy. Thus, Danny must soon move on from Slaver's Bay and head back to Westeros, and this is the direction Quaithe is pushing her towards. That's the whole point of Quaithe telling Danny repeatedly that, to go north, you must go south. Quaithe knows Danny needs to go north, and to bring fire and blood with her. In other words, Quaithe isn't telling Danny to go to war for the Iron Throne when she speaks of fire and blood, but confronting the others. Also, take note of Danny's determination to live out her values in the scene. Even as she's having this series of visions from Quave, she's walking, barefoot and bloody and delirious, all the way back to Slaver's Bay, because her people need her. So, like I said, Danny's track record of using power really is consistent all the way through all five books. Every time she's taken responsibility for other people, she's cared for them with the actual love and determination of a mother, and has consistently put everything on the line to carry out her ideals. So when she gets to Westeros, the realization she needs to have is pretty clear. The way to truly be the queen of Westeros, to protect and care for the people of the realm, will be to, say it with me, use her dragons in the fight against the others. That's why I say that the seeming conflict between Daenerys embracing her inner dragon and her fire-and-blood side and Daenerys using her power to protect people is in fact an illusion. As long as Danny is able to see through the trap. It's a trap! Of pursuing the Iron Throne. That's right, friends. If you love Daenerys, you actually shouldn't be rooting for her to sit on that thing. It's cursed. It's made of bloody swords. And to the extent that Danny does pursue the throne by trying to take King's Landing, I do believe that she will be met with death and tragedy, and that her quest for the throne will come into clear conflict with her moral values. This conflict can only be resolved if and when Danny decides to head north, allowing Danny to become both the Ultimate Dragon and the Ultimate Mother, a champion of Westeros capable of taking on the Long Night itself. Daenerys Targaryen is perceptive and wise. She's nobody's fool, and she repeatedly is able to see through lies and misconceptions, false kindness and false bravado, and the like. This is an especially important aspect of her character because, as I just outlined, the pivotal moment in Dany's arc is shaping up to be her ability to see through the trap of contesting for the Iron Throne, or more specifically, in her case, using the dragons to contest for the Iron Throne. This false prize aspect of the Iron Throne really is a key element of the series, and it's laid out very clearly in a few key quotes, most of which you guys will remember. The first is delivered by Osha the Wildling to Bran in a Game of Thrones, as Rob's army is preparing to march south to play the Game of Thrones. Giants and worse than giants, lordling. I tried to tell your brother when he asked his questions. Him and your maester and that smiley boy, Greyjoy. The cold winds are rising, and men go out from their fires and never come back. Or if they do, they are not men no more, but only whites, with blue eyes and cold black hands. Why do you think I run south with Stiv and Holly and the rest of them fools? I tried to tell your lordling brother only yesterday when I saw him in the yard. My lord Stark, I called to him, respectful as you please, but he looked right through me and that sweaty oaf Great John Umber shoves me out of the path. So be it. I'll wear my irons and hold my tongue. A man who won't listen, can't hear. Tell me. Rob will listen to me. I know he will. Will he now? We'll see. You tell him this, my lord. You tell him he's bound on marching the wrong way. It's north he should be taking his swords. North, not south. You hear me? This important truth will only become more true and more important over time. By the time Danny arrives in Westeros, the Long Night will be close at hand, and the need to take the swords and the dragons north will be of the utmost urgency. Thus, Danny's quest for the throne is suggested as the wrong goal right from the start. Fortunately it was never really her dream anyway, but that of Viserys, which we'll get to in a moment. Here's the second The Iron Throne is a false prize quote, and it's quite famous since it contains the title of the first book and the TV show. The High Septon once told me that as we sin, so do we suffer. If that's true, Lord Eddard, tell me. Why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you High Lords play your Game of Thrones? Ponder it, if you would, while you wait upon the Queen. So that was Varys speaking to Ned during Ned's imprisonment. And though Varys is arguably a hypocrite in that he also plays the Game of Thrones, and, oh yes, he uses mutilated children as his spies, that's right. But Varys is making a very important point. We might say the author is making a very important point, which is that the title of the first book of the series, A Game of Thrones, is a reference to capricious and entitled rulers who fight over a chair at the expense of the people they are supposed to care for. This game is a trap and the Iron Throne is a false prize. And it's a false prize for Daenerys more than any other character, because Daenerys is the only person in the world who has been given the tools to actually offer resistance to the Others and their army of the undead. Using those tools to play the Game of Thrones would be the wrong thing to do, according to the spirit of these quotes. I'm sure you can see that. The title of the fourth book is actually talking about the same thing. The Feast for Crows is a description of the various kings who are fighting over the carcass of Torn and Bloody Westeros. This, appropriately, is from A Feast for Crows, and this is Roderick the Reader Harlaw speaking to Asha Greyjoy, his niece. Crows will fight over a dead man's flesh and kill each other for his eyes. Lord Roderick stared across the sea, watching the play of moonlight on the waves. We had one king, then five. Now all I see are crows squabbling over the corpse of Westeros. So is the futility, cruelty, and capriciousness of war A major theme of A Song of Ice and Fire? I'd say so. They're carrion crows feeding on the land, those high lords who play the games that cause the populace to suffer. The morality axis for wielding power couldn't be any more clear, right? And it's obviously an important thing for the reader to understand, since George has dedicated at least two, if not three, spoiler alert, titles of the books to this subject. Now, Danny sees a vision during her House of the Undying chapter, which many believe expresses a similar concept of kings grotesquely fighting over Westeros, as Roderick the Reader was just expressing. This is actually the first vision that Danny has in the House of the Undying, and it seems like much the same idea as the crow kings fighting over Westeros, right? Here, Westeros is depicted as a woman, kind of like a representation of Mother Earth, and the kings are represented by radish dwarf men. Now, it could be that... Danny sees the kings as dwarves instead of crows because this is some sort of clue about Tyrion advising Danny towards violence and retribution, which would turn Danny into just another predatory monarch. Either way, the point is made. Playing the Game of Thrones turns high lords into carrion crows. Protecting the people is really the only measure by which a king or queen should be judged. So, as I mentioned, yes, <laughs> A Dance with Dragons, the fifth book title, would actually like to get a word in here too, since that book title is actually taken from the name given to the horrific, dragon fueled bloodbath that was the Targaryen Civil War of about 200 years ago. It was basically a Game of Thrones, but with dragons. That was the dance of the dragons, and Martin used this name for a book in which he introduced Phaegon, the Mummer's Dragon, who is set up to dance with Daenerys for the throne. Then we have one of the Winds of Winter early release sample chapters, which has a young Tior of House Toland sharing the dragon nightmares she's had recently, just as Fagon is landing nearby on Westeros' eastern shores. This quote begins with Arianne speaking of the initial reports of Fagon's men landing in the area. Once we know beyond a doubt whether these be friends or foes, my father will know what to do, the princess said. It was then that pasty, pudgy Tiora raised her eyes from the cream cakes on her plate. It is dragons. Dragons? Dragons, said her mother. Tiora, don't be mad. I'm not. They're coming. How could you possibly know that? Her sister asked with a note of scorn in her voice. One of your little dreams? Tiora gave a tiny nod, chin trembling. They were dancing, in my dream. And everywhere the dragons danced, the people died. Indeed, if you've read Fire and Blood, you know that High Lords playing the Game of Thrones with dragons is an unbelievably violent and monstrous affair. Everywhere the Dragon Lords dance, the people do die, and in awful, awful fashion. So again, Dany's ultimate test will be whether or not she can have the wisdom and the moral clarity to withdraw from the game and take her dragons north. When we go back and read Danny's chapters, really is striking how much George seems to be setting her up as the kind of perceptive and wise character who will indeed be able to see through the Game of Thrones trap. Danny's perceptiveness is a major component of her first chapter in Illyrio's Mance, and she's presented in striking contrast to Viserys, who is older and much more experienced, far less flexible in his thinking. As the scene opens, we see this dynamic at work. A gift from Magister Illyrio, Viserys said, smiling. Her brother was in a high mood tonight. The color will bring out the violet in your eyes, and you shall have gold as well and jewels of all sorts, Illyrio has promised. Tonight you must look a princess. A princess, Danny thought. She had forgotten what that was like. Perhaps she had never really known. Why does he give us so much, she asked. What does he want from us? For nigh on half a year, the head lived in the magister's house, eating his food, pampered by his servants. Danny was thirteen, old enough to know that such gifts seldom came without their price, here in the free city of Pentos. Illyrio is no fool, Viserys said. He was a gaunt young man with nervous hands and a feverish look in his pale lilac eyes. The magister knows that I will not forget my friends when I come into my throne. The fool here is obviously Viserys, while Danny is asking all the right questions. A moment later, this is punctuated again for the reader. Danny had no agents, no way of knowing what anyone was doing or thinking across the narrow sea, but she mistrusted Illyrio's sweet words as she mistrusted everything about Illyrio. Her brother was nodding eagerly, however. Similarly, when Viserys imperiously threatens to have Mormon's tongue torn out, declaring himself to be the dragon. We read that there are no more dragons, Danny thought, staring at her brother, though she did not dare say it aloud. Of course, a couple of chapters later, she'll finish this realization when Jorah calls Viserys less than the shadow of a snake, and asks Danny if she actually thinks Viserys could ever take Westeros with the 40,000 Dothraki screamers he's been lusting after, with the obvious answer being no. My brother will never take back the Seven Kingdoms, Danny said. She had known that for a long time, she realized. She had known it all her life. Only she had never let herself say the words, even in a whisper. But now she said them for Jora Mormont and all the world to hear. Sir Jora gave her a measuring look. You think not? He could not lead an army even if my lord husband gave him one, Danny said. He has no coin, and the only knight who follows him reviles him as less than a snake. The Dothraki make mock of his weakness. He will never take us home. Wise child, the knight smiled. I am no child, she told him fiercely. A minute later, they also discuss how Viserys was no Rhaegar, no true dragon. But Danny's wisdom and fierceness already have Mormont wondering if, perhaps, she may be the real dragon. And of course she is. The pinnacle of this first Danny chapter is the Golden Torque, which symbolizes her enslavement. And here again, Danny's perceptiveness is highlighted. They dressed her in the wisps that Magister Illyrio had sent up, and then the gown, a deep plum silk to bring out the violet in her eyes. The girl slid the gilded sandals onto her feet, while the old woman fixed the tiara in her hair, and slid golden bracelets crusted with amethysts around her wrists. The old woman washed her long, silver-pale hair and gently combed out the snags, all in silence. The girl scrubbed her back and her feet and told her how lucky she was. Drogo is so rich that even his slaves wear golden collars. Last of all came the collar, a heavy golden torque emblazoned with ancient Valyrian glyphs. Now you look all a princess, the girl said breathlessly when they were done. Danny glanced at her image in the silvered looking-glass that Illyrio had so thoughtfully provided. A princess, she thought. But she remembered what the girl had said, how Cal Drogo was so rich even his slaves wore golden collars. She felt a sudden chill, and goose flesh pimpled her bare arms. I really hope you guys are enjoying these quote reads here. I think it's very important to immerse ourselves in this first Daenerys chapter because it really does do such a good job of representing her fundamental hardened conflict character struggle and her arc to come. The two things we are being shown about Dany here is that she's being enslaved and that she's perceptive. Perceptive enough to realize she's being enslaved and also perceptive enough to realize that people like Illyrio cannot be trusted. As the story progresses, Daenerys retains this distrust of Illyrio even as she is still open to accepting his help. This is true of her other would-be allies and counselors as well in both Karth and Slaver's Bay. Danny balances a healthy skepticism and distrust with the need to seek alliances and receive counsel. She can't do everything by herself, after all, and she's starting off with basically nothing. Daenerys has also been warned again and again to be wary of everyone racing to Slaver's Bay, and of Betrayals in particular, so this is a path that she will need to continue to walk. As she moves forward, she'll have all sorts of people in her ear. Quave, Tyrion, Ser Barristan, probably the Dosh Kalin, probably Dario again, Marwyn the Mage, Victarion, and eventually Euron. Perhaps Makoro and other Red Priests, and at some point, she'd be listening to a resurrected Jon Snow tell her about the existential threat of the others, with those dreamy, dreamy eyes. What we've seen over the course of the first five books is that Danny listens to and considers advice, but in the end, will always have the courage to do what she believes is right, as she did when she freed the unsullied. Sir Jorah and Sir Berst, I mean, Arston Whitebeard, each told Danny different things there and in the end Danny refused to accept anything other than what she perceived as the most moral solution. Daenerys continues to show wisdom and perceptiveness after birthing the dragons and taking over the Khalasar. When they finally find some sign of civilization after their grueling sojourn in the Red Waste. Shout out to Moses wandering in the desert. Danny exercises caution and good judgment. So instead of rushing headlong into a potential trap Danny holds back and gathers information. This is a very good trait to have as a war leader, and hopefully, this kind of caution and wisdom will aid Daenerys in dealing with a delicate situation in Westeros and in King's Landing in particular. Similarly, when she gets to Carth and receives a warm welcome from Zarzo and Daxos and the other powers that be in Carth, Danny again shows wisdom and perceptiveness. And by the way, this is actually a huge change from books to show. The entrance to Carth on the show. Danny is imperious and threatening, demanding to be let in lest she return and burn the city to the ground. While in the books, Danny is invited into the city and flattered copiously. In any case, book Danny knows that she isn’t being given the full story by the power players of the city. We have only seen the parts of Karth that pyat Pri wished us to see, she went on. Ricaro, go forth and look on the rest and tell me what you find. Take good men with you. And women to go places where men are forbidden. Similarly, Danny sends Jorah to the docks to learn what news of the outside world and Westeros in particular that they can, saying that, because Jorah speaks several languages and is not afraid of the sea, as the Dothraki are, it's kind of important, he's ideally suited to the task. Danny also posts her own guards outside her wing of Zaro's manse, even though she's ostensibly under his protection. On and on. Some of these are small examples, but the consistency of Danny's ability to sniff out bullshit and see through illusion suggests that this is an important component of her character, and one which ultimately foreshadows her being able to see through the false prize of the Iron Throne. At least that's the case I'm making. There are plenty more examples along these lines, so check out the reread streams in the Who is the Real Daenerys Targaryen playlist for those. Now perhaps others will disagree, but in my view, It doesn't really make any sense to follow the order of events on the show, where Danny would somehow come back to her quest for the throne after having this all-important realization that she must be queen by protecting the people from the White Walker invasion. That would completely undercut the power of her decision to give up her quest for the throne. And once she's made that decision, I really don't see a reason to take her plot backwards and have her fail the test that she's already passed. I also don't see how it works as a coherent character arc to have Danny go full Mad Queen on her initial invasion of King's Landing, meaning intentionally murdering thousands of innocent civilians as some sort of cruel lesson or madness. Then after that to have her go north to save the world fighting the others, and then to finally have Jon or someone else put her down for her previous crimes. That doesn't make any sense, right? We pretty much know that Danny and her dragons will eventually take on the Others. I mean, there's just simply no way the story ends without the dragons and the Others fighting, right? And as I said, this really only makes sense as the climax of Danny's story, and the larger story as well. In other words, I really can't think of a single way to have a Mad Queen Danny gets murdered by John for being a tyrant scenario work if the dragons are in fact needed to face the Others, just in terms of plot structure, let alone in the face of all this analysis of her character that we've done so far. In fact, you can almost think about Mad Queen Danny, or perhaps a more believable version of that idea, as an alternate future, like that's what Danny could become if she were to stay fixated on the Iron Throne and never have the realization that the dragons are not meant for conquest, but for defending humanity from the Others. However, it's hard to find Martin laying any groundwork for Danny doing that, as we've seen. Instead, he seems to be setting this up as a conflict for Daenerys to overcome, and showing us that Danny has both the moral clarity and the perceptiveness to find the right path. I do want to be clear to the extent that Danny keeps trying to take the throne, people will keep dying. There probably will not be a way to thread the needle between Conqueror of Westeros and compassionate ruler. In order to pass the test and realize her destiny as a hero, Daenerys will have to relinquish her fight for the throne and go north. A moment ago, I suggested that the dream of conquering Westeros and sitting the Iron Throne wasn't actually Dany's to begin with. So let me explain what I mean, because this is another way in which Dany seems set up to ultimately let go of her claim to the throne. What Daenerys actually wants, first and foremost, is home. And by that I mean the concept of home. Safety, security, family, love... The lost innocence of her lost childhood. This is from Danny's first chapter again, right after Viserys leaves the room. When he was gone, Danny went to her window and looked out wistfully on the waters of the bay. The square brick towers of Pentos were black silhouettes outlined against the setting sun. Danny could hear the singing of the red priests as they lit their night fires and the shouts of ragged children playing games behind the walls of the estate. For a moment she wished she could be out there with them, barefoot and breathless, and dressed in tatters, with no past and no future, and no feast to attend at Kaldrogo’s manse. Indeed, Danny never really had a childhood, nor a home, as we learn in that same chapter. The Dothraki called that land Resh Andali, the land of the Andals. In the Free Cities, they talked of Westeros and the Sunset Kingdoms. Her brother had a simpler name. Our land, he called it. The words were like a prayer with him. If he said them enough, the gods were sure to hear. Ours by blood right, taken from us by treachery, but ours still, ours forever. You do not steal from the dragon, oh no, the dragon remembers. And perhaps the dragon did remember, but Danny could not. She had never seen this land her brother said was theirs, this realm beyond the narrow sea. These places he talked of, Casterly Rock and the Erie. Highgarden and the Vale of Arryn, Dorne and the Isle of Faces. They were just words to her. She had been born on Dragonstone nine moons after their flight, while a raging summer storm threatened to rip the island fastness apart. They said that storm was terrible. The Targaryen fleet was smashed while it lay at anchor, and huge stone blocks were ripped from the parapets and sent hurtling into the wild waters of the narrow sea. Her mother had died birthing her and for that her brother Viserys had never forgiven her. She did not remember Dragonstone either. As you can see, it's actually Viserys who thinks about Westeros as home and the Iron Throne as his when the story opens. Danny, however, has no real emotional connection to these things. Instead, she longs for the house with the red door, as she says many times, because that was the closest thing to home and safety and family that she ever experienced. She remembered Sir Willem dimly, a great gray bear of a man, half blind, roaring and bellowing orders from his sickbed. The servants had lived in terror of him, but he had always been kind to Danny. He called her Little Princess, and sometimes My Lady, and his hands were soft as old leather. He never left his bed though, and the smell of sickness clung to him day and night, a hot, moist, sickly sweet odor. That was when they had lived in Bravos, in the big house with the red door. Danny had her own room there with a lemon tree outside her window. After Sir Willem had died, the servants had stolen what little money they had left, and soon after they had been put out of the big house. Danny had cried when the red door closed behind them forever. They had wandered since then from Bravos to Mir, from Mir to Tyrosh, and on to Kohor and Volantis and Lys, never staying long in any one place. It's heartbreaking to think about this happening to a child. Forget the idea of Danny as the blood royal, or as a powerful dragon lord queen, and just see her as she is here, as a wandering orphan and refugee, who knows everything about worry and want, and nothing about silks and jewels, and who is now being sold into marital slavery by her abusive brother, who is her only known family. It only makes sense that Danny's sense of home is tied to the abstract ideas of safety, love, and family, as opposed to King's Landing, Dragonstone, and Westeros. And this is spelled out in very clear language a bit further on. We will have it all back someday, sweet sister, he would promise her. Sometimes his hands shook when he talked about it. The jewels and the silks, Dragonstone and King's Landing, the Iron Throne and the Seven Kingdoms, all they have taken from us, we will have it back. Viserys lived for that day, All that Daenerys wanted back was the big house with the red door, the lemon tree outside her window, the childhood she had never known. The chapter ends with a gut-wrenching bit of dialogue that once more highlights the difference between what Viserys wants, Westeros, versus what Danny wants, which of course is home. Khal Drogo has never lost a fight. He is Aegon the Dragonlord come again, and you will be his queen. Danny looked at Khal Drogo. His face was hard and cruel, his eyes as cold and dark as Onyx. Her brother hurt her sometimes when she woke the dragon, but he did not frighten her the way this man frightened her. I don't want to be his queen, she heard herself say in a small, thin voice. Please, please, Viserys, I don't want to. I want to go home. Home? He kept his voice low, but she could hear the fury in his tone. How are we to go home, sweet sister? They took our home from us. He drew her into the shadows, out of sight, his fingers digging into her skin. How are we to go home? He repeated, meaning King's Landing and Dragonstone, and all the realm they had lost. Danny had only meant their rooms in Illyrio's estate. No true home, surely, though all they had. But her brother did not want to hear that. There was no home there for him. Even the big house with the red door had not been home for him. It's striking how much the author is working to highlight this stark difference in the desires of Aceres and Danny here at the beginning of the story. Because as the Game of Thrones progresses, Danny will come to associate her idea of home with Westeros. In other words, it seems as though George may be setting up Danny to be able to give up her quest for the throne in lieu of something closer to her true desires. Here's what I mean. Because Danny is never able to regain the safety and security of her lost childhood, she's instead chosen to provide that same thing to others by adopting them as her children, as we've highlighted throughout this video. Becoming the Mysa, the Great Mother, is how Dany is fulfilling that deep need for home inside her, and the ultimate realization of this theme in her arc would be to save all of Westeros and perhaps the entire world from the Long Night. Even though Dany eventually adopts Viserys' dream of conquering Westeros as her own, it's not hard to see how she might be able to come to the place of letting go of that dream in favor of fulfilling her desire and need to provide safety to other people. As I mentioned, Dany's dream of home and the house with the red door quickly begins to merge with the idea of retaking Westeros as the story progresses. It's really interesting how it happens, too. It begins in Dany's third A Game of Thrones chapter, the day after she has that dragon dream which serves as a turning point in her early Dothraki arc, the one where she's bathed in dragonfire but feels reborn, stronger, and renewed. Dany begins taking power in her relationship with Drogo after this, begins to master riding, and so on. And this is when she begins to imagine Westeros as her home. "'What do you pray for, Sir Jorah?' she asked him. "'Home,' he said. His voice was thick with longing. "'I pray for home, too,' she told him, believing it." Sir Jorah laughed. "'Look around you then, Khaleesi.' But it was not the plains Danny saw then. It was King's Landing and the great Red Keep that Aegon the Conqueror had built. It was Dragonstone, where she had been born. In her mind's eye they burned with a thousand lights, a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye all the doors were red." As you can see, Martin is actually depicting the merging of these two desires in visual form for us, with Dragonstone becoming the house of a thousand red doors in Danny's dream. This underlines a point I made much earlier about the way that Danny would view the people of Westeros and King's Landing whenever she does arrive. To the extent that she thinks about Westeros as her new home and the throne as hers, she will then view the Westerosi as her people, as her newest children. All of her fierce Dragon Mother protection energy that she's shown for the Unsullied, freed slaves, and other refugees will also apply to the people of Westeros, making it all but unthinkable that she'd ever wantonly butcher the non-combatant citizens of King's Landing, as we saw on the show. Not to keep harping on that, a uh, shout out to Rhaegar's Silver Harp and the tumbledown Harpy of Marine, but this is just the kind of stuff we're looking for things that foreshadow how she will deal with Westeros and King's Landing. Now, the tragedy of Danny's lack of home is punctuated near the end of A Game of Thrones, when Danny receives the news that Khal Drogo's wound has mortified and that he will be dead by morning. Her words were a knife through Danny's breast. What had she ever done to make the gods so cruel? She had finally found a safe place, had finally tasted love and hope. She was finally going home. And now, to lose it all. After this loss and the additionally heartbreaking loss of her unborn child, Rego, Danny is finally at her lowest point, possessing nothing whatsoever, save for the dragon's eggs. But as I mentioned, Danny seems to transform this desire for home and safety into a mission to provide those things for the people that she cares for, the people she has adopted as her children. It's really one of the most beautiful aspects of Danny's character, the way that she turns her own trauma and pain into love and empathy for others. That's why I love the character, and why so many others find her so inspirational, and why it's actually fairly tragic that Danny is most likely fated to never be able to build the happy, peaceful kingdom for her people that she wants, but to instead throw herself into the teeth of the storm to save the world. She'll be the cleansing fire that clears the way for the new growth, for the dream of spring, even if she isn't around to see it. Daenerys Targaryen is self-reflective, self-aware, and spurns self-delusion, especially where it concerns her shortcomings and failures. This is the final point I want to make about the character, and it's an important one. Check out this quote from A Clash of Kings. As Danny ponders what returning to Westeros with an army of Dothraki under the command of Khal Drogo would have actually meant. And this also contains the reference to the beautiful, happy kingdom that Danny wants to create which I just alluded to. The thought of home disquieted her. If her son and stars had lived, he would have led his khalasar across the poisoned water and swept away her enemies. But his strength had left the world. Her blood riders remained, sworn to her for life and skilled in slaughter, but only in the ways of the horse lords. The Dothraki sacked cities and plundered kingdoms. They did not rule them. Dany had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. She had supped enough on tears. I want to make my kingdom beautiful, to fill it with fat men and pretty maids and laughing children. I want my people to smile when they see me ride by, the way Viserys said they smiled for my father. But before she could do that, she must conquer. Yes, yes, she had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin of unquiet ghosts. I think Dave and Dan must have read this passage and thought... Ah, but what if she does do exactly that and loves it? That will subvert expectations, aha! Or something along those lines, I'm not sure how those meetings go. But what I see here is someone who's already worried about the collateral damage of war, and someone who would see civilian casualties piling up in a potential battle for King's Landing and be horrified, not empowered. As I said, I believe that it's a tragic element of Danny's story that she'll never have the chance to build this beautiful kingdom. But I do think the author is showing us how Danny might be affected by the high civilian casualties that may come in her attempt to wrest the throne from Phagon. This is exactly the sort of emotional fulcrum which should cause Danny to see through the Game of Thrones trap and turn north to face the real threat. When Danny decides to remain in Slaver's Bay at the end of a storm of swords, instead of going to Westeros, we again see Danny's desire to build a kingdom and provide safety, as well as a bit of self-awareness of the fact that everything hasn't gone perfectly after her liberation of Slaver's Bay. This is the speech she gives her captains and commanders, explaining her rationale to stay. Aegon the Conqueror brought fire and blood to Westeros, but afterward he gave them peace, prosperity, and justice. But all I have brought to Slaver's Bay is death and ruin. I have been more Kahl than Queen, smashing and plundering, then moving on. There is nothing to stay for, said Brown Ben Plum. Your Grace, the Slavers brought their doom on themselves, said Dario Naharis. You have brought freedom as well, Masande pointed out. Freedom to starve, asked Danny sharply. Freedom to die? Am I a dragon or a harpy? Am I mad? Do I have the taint? A dragon, Sir Barristan said with certainty. Meereen is not Westeros, your grace. But how can I rule seven kingdoms if I cannot rule a single city? Daenerys is pretty consistently critical of her own actions, especially once coming to power in Slaver's Bay. She's, in fact, overly harsh on herself here, saying that she's only brought death and ruin. Missandei is correct that Dany's also brought freedom, and of course, the people that Dany killed directly were slave masters who needed to die. That's right, we're not here to debate the ethics of killing slave masters. It's pretty much always good, in my opinion. But the point Danny is making is that freedom is little good if she leaves her people to starve or to be oppressed by new masters. This is why she decides to stay and why she makes compromises with the remaining Miranese nobles and other slave cities of the region to try to bring peace throughout A Dance with Dragons. Danny's desire to bring peace to the region eventually leads Danny to what is undoubtedly her darkest act in the book, which is her decision to let the Shavepate subject a Miranese wine merchant and his children to quote-unquote sharp questioning, which is a euphemism for some level of torture. Now the wine merchant was almost certainly helping the harpy assassins who were waging a campaign of brutal murder against Danny's Unsullied, and the wine merchant's children are implied as adult children helping him with his business as opposed to young children because they were arrested along with the merchant. But still, Danny isn't sure that he's guilty, and obviously any kind of torture is highly immoral, so this is certainly an act which the reader should regard as unjust. I still don't think this foreshadows Danny turning her dragonfire on helpless citizens, because ultimately Danny is trying to protect her own children, her unsullied here. But this is a reflection on the inherent difficulties of attempting to decide when it is just to use violence, if ever. And it shows us that Danny isn't perfect and can go too far. This should be a constant issue for Danny right up until the moment that she decides to give up her quest for the throne. For example, I've said that Volantis is well set up for Danny to be able to target the slave master nobles who, very conveniently, live exclusively behind the black walls of the inner city. But there could, of course, still be some level of collateral damage, some level of innocent life lost. The issue of collateral damage and violence will be even more sticky when she gets to Westeros, of course. And since this is the source of Dany's primary character conflict, we should expect George R. R. Martin to place Danny in other difficult situations that will test her morals and commitment to justice. Now, in addition to worrying about the collateral damage that the Dothraki can cause in Westeros, Dany also specifically worries about the collateral damage that the dragons can cause, both in Westeros and here in Marine. In A Clash of Kings, she observes that the dragons must be trained as well, or they will lay my kingdom waste. Again, Danny does not want to reduce King's Landing to ruins, uh, just in case anyone was unclear. Of course, we know in A Dance with Dragons, Danny is confronted with the death of Hosea, the shepherd's daughter whom Drogon killed while hunting outside of Mirene. The sight of Hosea's bones affects Danny so deeply that she locks up her remaining two dragons, fearful of further such incidents. This certainly diminishes Danny's power, both in the eyes of the Myranese nobles and the various pro slavery factions outside the city who want to depose Danny. And yet Danny repeatedly refuses her commander's pleas to loose the dragons. Once again, Danny is placing the safety of her people above all other things, and once again, Danny is deeply self reflective and critical. Mother of dragons, Danny thought. Mother of monsters. What have I unleashed upon the world? A queen I am, but my throne is made of burned bones, and it rests on quicksand. Without dragons, how could she hope to hold Meereen, much less win back Westeros? I am the blood of the dragon, she thought. If they are monsters, so am I. This quote is actually sometimes held up as proof that Tany will go bad or crazy, but I think that's exactly the opposite message that George is sending with this passage. In my opinion, you want the only person with dragons to be highly self-reflective and concerned with the damage and death that they can bring. If she's an overly harsh critic of her use of draconic power, that's not a bad thing at all. That's going to make her cautious as opposed to careless or aggressive. This self-reflection is also a sign of Danny's empathy. The dragons are essentially monsters, and any reasonable person would be horrified at the thought of people being burnt alive. And yet... Dany is somehow supposed to reconcile herself to the fact that she shares some kind of blood link to these monsters, and that their terrible power has been given to her to wield. She's kind of getting stuck here on the dilemma of how to conquer Westeros with dragons, without seeing hundreds or thousands of people being burned alive. After all, even the soldiers of the Westerosi houses who oppose her conquest are also eventually going to be subjects whom Danny wants to accept her rule. So Danny doesn't really want to roast them either. Of course, we know the answer to this dilemma can only be walking away from the idea of using the dragons to conquer altogether, and that's exactly the point. Danny doesn't yet know about the incipient threat of the White Walkers and the new Long Night that is surely coming. No one knows about that, because it's not here yet. So, Danny's not yet in a position to realize the best use of her dragons. Or one might even say, the true purpose of the dragons. She's already dead smack in the middle of seeing the problem though, and given everything we've seen about her values and priorities and sense of responsibility as a ruler, we can have little doubt that she will figure out what to do when the moment comes. Friends, I want to thank you for spending the last 90 minutes with me. I really hope you walked away with a better understanding of Daenerys Targaryen. If you're new to the channel, the playlist tab is a great place to start. I've got all kinds of theory madness going on. There's Winds of Winter previews videos. There's more character-based analysis like this one. All kinds of good stuff. Please do consider yourself officially invited to join the MythHead community. That's MythHead myth head with a Y. Important difference. We have live streams every Starry Wisdom Sunday at 3pm Pacific, and it's a rippin' good time, all agree. I'll be following up this video with a Danny discussion stream, so check that one out live next Sunday if you're getting this video fresh off the presses, and look for it linked below after that. Thanks so much to all my Patrons, many of whose names you've seen today, and thanks to everyone watching, sharing, liking, and commenting on my videos. Most of all, I'd like to thank George R.R. Martin for creating the best fictional character of my generation, of our generation. And I'd like to ask you all to join me in sending George all your best wishes and intentions as he attempts to bring A Song of Ice and Fire to a satisfying close.